Let's pray. Lord God, we rejoice in your victory over death and sin and the grave. We rejoice in the liberty and the freedom and the grace in which we stand as your sons and daughters. We pray now that you would um, focus our hearts and minds on the matter at hand. Focus our intentions at being your people, at hearing your word, at singing your praise. Um, Free us from the fears, the anxieties, the concerns of the world around us in this time, and that we might see you glorified, that we might hear your word and be changed, that we might, with sincere lips in spirit and truth, sing to you your praise. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome. Welcome to Martinsdale Community Church. Welcome in our other rooms. Welcome online. We've uh, changed our policy in the last week. An email went out. I'd like to clarify regarding masks. Uh, Because all of our seating, as it's six feet apart, and as we read and reread our governor's instructions, there's no instruction, there's no requirement from our our political leaders in this regard for asking people when they're sitting down. So if you want to not wear a mask when you're seated, go for it. However, our governor and the church leaders are asking you in the time it takes to enter and leave when we cannot maintain six feet of distance crossing people in the hall to do that. And so... um, For the sake of your neighbor, I know you may say, I'm willing to take my chances. That's fine. You don't get to make that decision for your neighbor two feet away from you in the hall. Um, I'm going to read to you from Romans 15, because if if the primary concern here is my rights, my freedom, don't tell me what to do, you may want to check your heart. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Even if this is a silly requirement, even if in our weakness we are erring, listen to your governmental leaders, listen to your church leaders, serve your neighbor, use your strength to serve the weak. Um, But while you're seated in your seats, be free to use, not use masks. But as you come and go in the hallways while people are entering and leaving, we do ask you to wear them. Your governor is asking you to wear them. Youth service trip has returned. They raised over three, nearly $3,000, and they have done quite a lot with that at Camp Avenues. I was um, spending some time with Mark Sullivan yesterday. They built a, a footbridge. How, how long was that, Daniel? 25-foot footbridge. They put gravel on, on paths. They built a swing set. Um, they're thankful to you for your generosity, for your... Um, your, your gifts in that regard to help support that. Pastor Daniel will again be out of the office next week as he goes down to teach the counselors at Camp Apenus. For those of you interested about when we're holding our graduation service, we've been pushed back as many of the graduation services in our community, Norwalk and Martinsville, have been pushed back. We are now scheduling graduation Sunday for June 28th. For June 28th. And now we will return to the worship of the Lord in song. Thank you. Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. As we work our way through Paul's glorious letter to the Ephesians, we come across the strongest, hardest, perhaps harshest warning in the entire book. And I want to warn you to prepare for what will be a challenging message. This will be hard to hear. Not challenging because it's 
complicated. In fact, what Paul says is so blunt and plain, it can be hardly misunderstood, but challenging because for some of you, me, this may question the reality of our salvation. For others, this is going to have impact on loved ones, children, cousins, parents, friends. Um, So I pray that you will submit yourself to God's word. Listen, examine these things in scripture and see if these things are so. We're looking at three verses. I'd like to read them and then have a word of prayer. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Lord God, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Um, Lord, I I pray that your word would wound and heal, break our hard hearts, comfort our tender hearts. I pray that you would strengthen bent reeds and smoldering wicks, and that you would shatter hearts of stone. Give us grace now as we look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Title this morning's message actually taken from the NIV's rendering of one of the phrases here. The NIV renders the phrase not even be named as not a hint. That's about right, it's about the idea. And so today's title is not even a hint. We're to look at this passage in two parts. This is a continuation of what Paul has written before. You see that with the word the ESV translates, but the first word. This is This is continued thought. And so again, I'll remind you that even as Paul moves through this ethical section of the book, and even as he uses the the metaphor of walk, conduct yourself, as as a marker, as we're entering into adding new themes, it is one progressive thought. We've just come out of a list of sins to avoid and corresponding righteous behavior to put on. Last week we were told that ultimately what we need to endeavor to do is to imitate God as beloved children. We ought to bear a family resemblance to our adopted household. That we ought to love as Christ loved, not seeking his own rights, not holding on to his privileges, but giving himself up. We ought to live like that. So we will now begin verses 3 to 4. As Paul now puts a contrast, the but means we're seeing something in opposition, something in conflict. As opposed to imitating God, as opposed to imitating Christ's sacrificial love, but sexual morality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So your first blank, what must not be named among us? Verses three through four. What must not be named among you? Look at this in four points. Four points. First, the put off. The put off. Now, structurally, there are three triplets, three three part lists of sins to avoid. 
The first triplet is here, sexual morality, all impurity, or covetousness. Then in verse 4, you get your second one, filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. And then in verse 5, sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous. There's your third triplet. So Paul's going to deal with these vices, these sins, in threefold pattern. It occurs three times. And so we'll look at our first put off. And we read, but sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you. So these terms, I'll read from one commentator, are broad. The word for sexual morality is the Greek word pornea. And what it means is any and all forms of forbidden sexual activity and expression. That's the basic idea. You could fit all manner of things under this category. Uh, They accused Jesus of of being born of pornea, meaning extra marital sex. Adultery can fall under this heading. Incest can fall under this heading. It's, it's It's an umbrella category that speaks of any and all types of sin. The idea here is each and every form of sexual sin. That's your blank. Each and every form of sexual sin. Our culture has invented new ones. The internet gives option to many more. And in case you wonder, well, the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid viewing explicit websites. Yes, it does. Because here, under these three terms, everything you can imagine under that heading is covered. Or to put it positively, rather than naming each and every wrong working of sexual passion, anything that is not a sexual passion and activity in monogamous marriage is being covered by these terms. I'll read, um, I'll read what one commentator says about them. And the idea here, I think, is Paul is trying to wrap his hands around a whole group of sins. He says, Pornia refers to fornication or sexual immorality and includes all kinds of sexual activity outside of a committed marriage relationship. The next term typically refers to uncleanness or impurity, but is often coupled with the first term by Paul in his writings and can carry the idea of sexual impurity. Here, whereas the first term has the idea of law-breaking, what is forbidden, here the idea is what contaminates and makes filthy and unclean. The third term for covetousness, um, I think, does speak in some senses to all forms of covetousness. But in particular, how does the, the, the commandment against coveting your neighbor's wife? I, I think it's first and foremost, I'll read again, this context, it probably or means primarily unrestrained sexual greed, whereby a person assumes that others exist for his own gratification. So I, I don't want to limit it to that. I think Paul does have in mind all forms of covetousness, but grouped with these three words, the first concept I'd be thinking about, my first circle would be that hungering, coveting, wanting, yearning desire for someone else or something else. So that's, that's Paul's list. That's what he's grabbing here. And the next thing I want you to know is this. These sins are antithetical in opposition to, the opposite of God's love. That's, that's worth making because our culture insists it's love precisely that motivates these things. Love isn't against the law. Love is love. We were in love. The heart wants what the heart wants. And yet Paul puts them in contrast to God's love. 
right? You see that in the first two verses. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual morality, in contrast to that, let me explain how that is. This paragraph differs from the preceding one in that the sins discussed in it are not criticized because of the harm they may do to other members of the community, and are not, but because they are not connected to the pattern of God's love in Christ. Here we see self-indulgence, self-fulfillment, self-pleasure. In contrast, Christ's love is self-surrendering, self-crucifying. You see the difference? The one consumed with passion, and the danger is I'm consumed with passion, the other person's consumed with passion, we're both consumed with passion, and so what can be wrong, right? Christ's example of love is I will die for the good of another. I will surrender my rights. I will surrender myself. I will surrender my desires and seek the good of my neighbor. And so that's where these things are in direct contrast. Does that make sense how sexual morality, impurity, and covetousness, I want, I'm going to hold on to, I hunger for, I thirst for, is in direct opposition Christ saying, I lay down my life for the sheep. And Christ saying, I came not to be served, but to serve. So that's the put off. That's the put off. Why? He gives us a reason. He says, it ought not to even be named among you as is proper among saints. So let's talk for a moment about what it means to not be named among you. Like I said already, the NIV has the term, not even a hint. And what Paul is saying is that these sins ought to be so far from being commonly expressed in the body, so far from being tolerated in the body, that no one, unbelievers, believers alike, would name believers as guilty of these things. That's a pretty high standard. That's a pretty high, that's what he says. Uh, Maybe a modern day thing might be this. Think of how far a, a company might want to distance themselves from accusations of child or spousal abuse with their employees. Think of how, what lengths companies today will go from any accusations of racism. Company after company wants to distance themselves, wants to make it clear they have no part in this. They don't want there to even be a hint. They don't want it named among them. Or think of, think of how far we might want to remove any accusations that people in the body are guilty of rape or sex trafficking, things like these. How there's a zero tolerance. That's your first blank. You must have a zero tolerance for these sins. Yes, we'll struggle with them. But t- turn to Matthew 5. Turn to Matthew 5. The issue isn't whether or not we will struggle with them. We will. Of course we will. The issue is whether or not we have pet sins whether we have autonomous zones in our life where Christ does not rule, where we allow, we justify sins. Look at, look at Jesus' teaching on this in relationship to lust in Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to understand that what Paul is saying is in full accord and agreement with what the Lord says. So in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 30. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Then it's not for nothing. This is why you got to read the Bible in context. Immediately following, if your right eye causes you to sin, how so? In looking at that woman, pluck it out. Tear it out. Throw it away from you. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Did Jesus just say that heaven and hell are at stake in how seriously you and I fight against sexual sin? Absolutely, he just did. You better fight like hell or you may go there, is what he's saying. No measures would be too radical. He's not literally calling on us to have surgical amputations. What he's saying is there is no level at which you can say, I'm fighting hard enough. You can always ratchet it up. And he puts it in this context. I want you to see the continuity of the stakes Jesus puts on this issue and what Paul says back in Ephesians. This is to be something there's zero tolerance. We would have zero tolerance on a known sex trafficker in our community. Would we not? We wouldn't say, well, you know, everyone's at different stages of their walk. We're saved by grace, not by works. We would have zero taunts. We deal if someone's regularly beating their spouse or their children and it was known, we wouldn't say, well, we don't want to be legalists. Would we? Of course we wouldn't. We know what it means in certain areas to have a level of zeal where things are not tolerated, they're not named among us. And Paul is saying that is what we ought to do. That is what is fitting for saints. If we claim to be saints, here's your blank, we must walk like it. If we claim to be saints, we must Walk like it. I think, it's, I think there's greater significance to how we refer to ourselves as Christians and how we speak about our conversion than we may think. I've said before that I find it discouraging, and it's not a helpful sign that the primary way most Christians speak of their conversion are entirely unbiblical. It's not sinful. It just means we've drifted from the pattern. What's the primary way? I was this old, or it was this summer when I accepted Jesus, when I asked him into my heart. There's nothing wrong with describing it that way. It's just not biblical. But think of the, think of the implied, implied imperatives it would be in. I was this old when I became a saint, when I became a holy one. That's what Paul's saying. The word saint means holy. Live like holy people. Think of the difference if you use just the language of Ephesians and John 3. Because what happens is we don't, see any, we don't see any inherent connection between what you accept or who you ask into your heart and how you live your life. But if you were to describe your salvation this way, it was the summer of 1999 when the Lord brought me to faith in his son, redeeming me. I was born anew. My heart was replaced. He put his spirit in me to cause me to desire and to do his will and to lead me in truth. And when he fashioned me anew for good works in which I am to walk in. But I do what I want and I live with my girlfriend. The, the, the cognitive dissonance becomes clear. The cognitive dissonance becomes clear if we think more and more in biblical terms of our conversion. So he reminds us, we're saints, we're set apart, we're holy ones. This is only fitting. It's not legalism. This is only what is right and fitting. Then we get to our second triplet. Our second triplet. Put off. Let there be no 
filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. And again, it's less three categories and more a big net. I think we all know what he's talking about. It's that obscene, rude, explicit, risque humor. Sometimes delights in the forbidden, the taboo. Delights in what's a little dirty, a little defiled. Now, why would he group these things here? Notice they don't show up in the second triplet. The second triplet is a repetition of the first triplet. So the first triplet, verse 3, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. The second triplet that we're looking at now, filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. Third triplet, sexual morality, just like verse 3. Impurity, just like verse 3. Covetousness, just like verse 3. So we've got three triplets. Two of them are identical, or nearly identical, just different forms of the words. And I think the idea is this. Paul sees a continuity between joking and humor and wit and speech and cursings that involve these things and the later more full-grown fruit of acting on these things. Is it not the case that what we first find amusing and humorous and we laugh at, we later come to accept and embrace and act upon? If you want to use the analogy of a fruit-bearing tree, coarse joking, filthiness, foolish talk are sapling trees that later bear fornication and adultery fruit. I think that's in Paul's mind. That's the relationship. Um, Now, the ESV unhelpfully says, let there be no. There's no verb in the Greek in verse verse 4. The verb is assumed from verse 3. Literally, it's just and. So Paul gives his first list, let these things not be named among you, as is fitting among saints, and foolish talk, and crude joking, and filthiness. The, the verb is the same. Let it not be named among you. Again, zero tolerance. Zero tolerance. This too, you're blank, also must not be named among us. We ought not to tolerate and accept this. We ought not to tell ourselves kids will be kids. Teenagers will be teenagers. These things ought not to characterize. They ought not to be common. When they sprout up, they should be dealt with swiftly, with alacrity and zeal. That, that's, that's the idea. This is, again, how we're distinct from the world because these things define the world, Paul said back in Ephesians chapter 4. If you remember Pastor Daniel's passage from a few weeks ago, we read in verse 18... Well, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What characterizes the unbeliever? They've given themselves up to their passions. They've given themselves up to their impure sexual desires. We ought to imitate God and be the opposite of that. The opposite of that. We we tell ourselves all sorts of lies. It's okay if I'm in a committed relationship. It's okay if I'm just looking at things because no one's hurt. It's okay because everyone else, nope. Let it not even be named among you. That's the standard. And the reason i got to make that point is, if you move the mark of what you're aiming at, and of course, we're just aiming at this. No one, no church will perfectly fulfill this. We will struggle. 
But if you're just aiming at not letting there be too much lust, too much uncleanness, too much covetousness, you're going to fight a less zealous warfare. If we recognize that the second these things sprout up, the second those weeds appear in your garden, you pull them up by the roots, you'll, you'll fight sin a different way. You'll fight sin a different way. So then what are we to put on? Here we got to put on. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Put on gratitude. Put on gratitude. And here I want you to get the logic. Remember, Paul's already told us, put off the old man, put on the new man. So he lists six sins. Sins of covert expression and sins of speech. And what should be put on in their place? Thanksgiving. What's the implication? I think you get the logic here. I think oftentimes much, if not all, of this type of sin, this type of language, this self-expression, comes from a lack of thankfulness and gratitude to God. Doesn't it make sense? That coveting desire, I want, I need to have, I need to see, is the antithesis of I am content with who I am in Christ and who God is for me. Do you see how the two are at odds with each other? This type of lustful passion is characterized by need, by hunger, by a sense of lack. I want to fill this hunger. I want to satisfy this appetite. I have something missing that I need and I yearn for versus contentment and gratitude. I'm not empty. I overflow with thanksgiving. And so if this is something you struggle with, if this is something that may characterize you, if these are sins that are besetting for you, don't forget not only to, to, to make efforts, to make plans, to, to put off the old man, but also to focus time for thanksgiving, for gratitude, for thanking God, for cultivating a thankful heart. You need to put off that coveting with gratitude and contentment. We need to be thankful and content for who God is. That's partly, again, why Paul, in the first three chapters, laid out all that God in Christ has done for us. You've been adopted. You've been predestined. You've been redeemed. You've been given his spirit. You've been given an inheritance. You've been raised from the dead. You've been given a new heart. You've been seated with Christ. Can you be content? Can I be content with that? And when my heart cries out, but I want, we restrain it, we rebuke it, we pray against it. Okay, so that is what must not be named. Okay? Let's now look at what must be known among you. What must be known about you? Because now we come to the warning. Now we come to the warning. Now read verse 5 and 6. Read it slowly. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And break this down into two sections, the certain truth and the urgent warning. The certain truth and the urgent warning. Now note that Paul brackets this warning with statements of its dependability. 
You may be sure of this. Well, it's God's word. Of course I can. So when God in his word says, now this you can be certain of. May I suggest you can be certain of it. Literally what Paul says in the Greek is no knowing. This is something known to them. This is not some new teaching. Paul is reminding them of what they already know. Okay? Paul is about to say, what Paul is about to say is already known to them. This is not new. This is not some new teaching. And here's the teaching. Those named by these sins have no inheritance. Let's let's unpack that. Um, What Paul says, plainly and simply, and the ESV here is attempting to work this, puts um, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetousness. The Greek is literally just every sexually immoral person, each and every sexually immoral person. And it's literally the name for the person. It's not an adjective attached to the person. The immoralite. The impureite. The covetous. He names them. And we can talk in a minute of, okay, what, is, what does it mean to be named? But before we answer that question, just look at what he says. If the first condition applies to you, if the protasis is true, if condition A, if you can be named by this thing, if you are the impure, the sexually immoral, whatever that means, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. That's, that's what he says. To which we then have to ask, what does that mean? And some have attempted to explain warnings like these by saying, this isn't about salvation, this is about reward. And there are some who are going to be in the kingdom but won't inherit it. And there are going to be some in the kingdom with more crowns and less crowns. I, I don't think so. I don't think that will hold up in Ephesians at all. Turn back to chapter 1. Now again, we haven't settled what does it mean to be the sexually immoral, to be the impure, to be the covetous. We're dealing with that next. I just want to insist that what we're talking about are salvation stakes. So whoever it is that satisfies the first part of that clause, I'm saying, doesn't have a hope in heaven. Here's why. Look at verse 14. 1 chapter 1 verse 14. This is that great long list of all that God's done for you. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it the praise of his glory. Paul just said, these people, whoever they are, we'll deal with that in a minute, have no inheritance. If you have no inheritance, you cannot have the spirit who is the guarantee of the inheritance you don't have or God is lying. You follow? The Holy Spirit is many things. He's a teacher and he's a God. But he's also, according to verse 14, the guarantee of an inheritance. When God gives his spirit, he says to his son or daughter, I guarantee you will receive an inheritance. These people have no inheritance. Therefore, if God sealed them with his spirit, he's a liar. Therefore, they do not have the spirit. You follow the logic of Ephesians? Such people have no inheritance. The spirit serves as the guarantee of an inheritance. Ipso facto, these people do not have the spirit. Look down further to verse 18. Having the hearts, having your eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope 
to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. These people also have no hope and no calling because Paul links the hope and the calling with the inheritance. And if they have no inheritance, they have no spirit, they have no hope, they have no calling, they have no salvation. I believe that's what Paul is saying. Let me now reference some of Paul's other passages where he makes similar statements. This is where this is hard. I still haven't answered what qualifies somebody as part of this list. I'm just arguing right now. This is heaven and hell, life and death, salvation. That Paul, and there's a a tension in Paul. I get it. Paul insists we are saved by grace through faith apart from works. And then Paul will say in nearly all of his epistles, make no mistake, people that live this way consistently go to hell. I'll read through them. Romans 8 12 through 13. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen to Paul's warning in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Very similar language to what we have here. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So there's one hint to what this means. It certainly doesn't mean someone who's once done this. Because Paul can speak to the Corinthian church and say, yeah, those, those used to be your besetting sins. That's not who you are anymore. So whatever someone who is immoral means, it doesn't mean someone who at one point in their life did this. It certainly doesn't mean that. Let's keep going. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. I I meet some people who genuinely believe a Christian questioning their salvation is from Satan. It's from Paul. 2 Corinthians 13.5, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Galatians 5.19-21, again, strikingly similar language to our passage here. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're, They're obvious. They're right in front of you. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, divisions, dissensions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is no novel teaching in Paul. It's just largely sidelined in many churches. I could go on. I I got eight other passages here. I'll, I'll leave it at that. This is no novel teaching in Paul. We've got to deal with the tension that Paul insists. We're saved not by reforming our lives. We're saved not by changing our behavior, but by trusting in Christ. But if after claiming to trust in Christ, our life doesn't change, we're not saved. That's what Paul is insisting on. So the certain truth, those 
named by these sins have no inheritance. Let me talk now for a bit about what I think he means by named by. I think what he means is these are people who are characterized by, habitually living in, at peace with these sins. I certainly don't think it means people who are struggling against, people who are fighting, people who are repenting. These are people who are at peace. With, they, made a, they made a peace treaty with fornication a long time ago. They made a peace treaty with pornography a long time ago. They're not fighting. They're not battling. I, I think that's what Paul's talking about. Paul, Paul uses another language, those who practice such things, those who habitually practice such things. So, so let me be clear. The, the mark of a Christian, the mark of the new birth, the mark of the Spirit is that we repent of sin when we are shown it. That's why ultimately people will not repent. We will remove them from the body. Because what we're saying is, you don't seem to be a sheep. Because the mark of a Christian is they submit to God's rule. The mark of a Christian is Jesus is Lord. And when you act like you have no Lord, like you're living in spiritual chaz, an autonomous zone, You're acting like you have no savior in God. Paul makes the link here when he says that covetousness is idolatry, right? Covetousness is idolatry. Your next blank here. Because such people really worship other gods. Think think about this. My wife and I had somebody in our home some years back who had made a profession of faith in tears in our living room. And we were talking to them about an immoral and illicit relationship they're having with somebody else. It was an unbeliever, and it was explicit. And they knew it was wrong, and we were talking with them. And what they said was, I I need this. This is my chance for happiness. I I know it's wrong, but but, but I need this. And I tried to patiently explain to them, you have made this relationship your functional God. No, I haven't. What do you mean? Well, you're admitting God has a claim on your life and this relationship has a claim on your life. And we know which one has more worth to you, to which one you ascribe more worthship. It's the one you serve. It's the one you obey. It's the one you give yourself to. This is your God, right? Covetousness is idolatry. Anytime you or I treasure, prize, value, hold the something is more valuable, more precious, more delightful, more lovely than God, it's an idol. And that's why when, when, when we hold these, and again, I'm getting back to not the sins we struggle with, not the sins we, we fight, not the sins we groan against, but the sins we're at peace with, the sins we serve and worship as our masters. That's idolatry. You're worshiping a different God. My heart is worshiping a different God if I embrace and hold fast to these things. It's idolatry. So let me spell this out to you as simply as I can. If these sins come to define us, if you can be defined, as what Paul says here in verse um, 5, Sexually immoral. If you can be defined as impure, if you can be defined as covetous, if these sins come to define us, they will damn us. If these sins come to define us, they will damn us. 
Turn in your Bible to 1 John um, as, we, as we round the corner to um, the warning that Paul gives. Because not only does Paul give us this hard truth, he warns us not to be deceived. Isn't it remarkable when in an errant and inspired scripture we get both a, you can trust this, and a, make sure no one deceives you. It's almost as if Paul thinks we're inclined to not want to believe this, isn't it? It's almost as if Paul thinks we may not want to look this straight in the face. And I think in many respects, it's, we have been deceived. We tell ourselves lies. I know Timmy's not doing well, but Timmy asked Jesus into his heart in Awana 12 years ago. He hasn't seen the church since, but I know once saved, always saved. And Paul says, I warn you now as I warned you then, those who practice such things will not go to heaven. And rather than having Timmy's conscience dulled, he needs urgent warnings if he's given himself to gross sin. That, that's, that's the important part. But we come up with, oh, he's, he's a carnal Christian. He's a carnal Christian. You mean he's not a Christian? That, that's what you mean. Um, I, this, this is intensely personal to me because I was deceived by this truth. I was deceived of this truth, from this truth. I believed a lie, not this truth. And I would have said I was a Christian all growing up through high school. I was regularly giving myself to these types of sins, especially in, my, in the early to mid-90s. Gross immorality, debauchery, drunkenness. Um, and people around me, those few times my conscience would begin to question, would, would say, oh, but it's not by works, right? You're trusting in Christ, right? And I understand, I wasn't fighting sin. I loved my sin. I was, I was like the dog just lapping up my vomit. I wasn't reading my Bible. I wasn't in fellowship. I, 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 this was my master. I loved it. And I just thought of myself as I'm just a bad Christian. In fact, I remember vomiting, projectile vomiting outside of a keg party in UNH. And someone saw the cross around my neck that my sister had given me. And they said, you're a Christian. And I looked up and I said, yeah, just a bad one. That was a category in my head, but that category was reinforced by others, pastors, people in the church, because when I would become convicted, and prior to my conversion, over about four years, I did get convicted at various times and I'd go talk, I heard things like, people that question their salvation are saved. Only a saved person would worry about not being saved. I have yet to read that verse. Oh, seriously, if you find it, let me know. I have yet to find that verse. I went, oh. And so I, I, I was comforting myself in my sin that, well, because I fear judgment, I must be saved. Well, that's good to know. I went back out and gave myself to these things. And then I read 1 John 2. I want you to read it. It's not just Paul who has these hard things to say. John, the beloved apostle. This is the text God used to open my blind eyes to my dead state. 1 John 2, 3 and 4. By this we know that we have come to know him. And it's not that you wrote something on the inside of your Bible with a date. It's not that you made a decision. It's not that you go to church or you got baptized. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
And I love John. He's, he's apophatic. He says it positively and negatively. In case we're, not, we're left, not left wondering, well, what about those that that's not true with? He tells us, whoever says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. And that was a text as I began to become convicted in the summer of 1999, I could not get around. I had all sorts of excuses. I could not get around that one. And the Lord, in an act of love and kindness, showed me the perilous state I was in. Paul warns us that we, if we're not careful and alert, will become deceived over this truth. And I think the church, by and large, has. And I think there's a connection between that and the fact that sexual sin is frequently named among the church. I think there's a connection between really believing and accepting and receiving this hard warning and fighting zealously for purity. I I think there's a connection. I don't think it's not for nothing that the American church, even the conservative evangelical church, is not stain-free, is not, not named among, and the fact that we don't treat this sin as if it's deadly. Jesus does. You better pluck off your eye, cut off your hand. You better fight like hell or you're going to go there, he says. Here's your first blank. We must be alert to deception at this point. We must be alert to deception at this point. We must anticipate it. We should be looking out for it. So that when someone comes along and says, they're just like, you're one of those people who's supposed to deceive me. Paul told me about you. Uh-uh, ain't getting me. He, he front ends it. You can be sure of this. Back end, I warn you now. He, he makes it clear. Let no one deceive you. I'm sorry, I was confusing that with 1 Corinthians 6. Now notice again, another proof that we're talking about heaven and hell, life and death. Why? Why is there no deception on this? Because... Of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. That's a term we've seen before in Ephesians, back in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, this is how we were when we were unbelievers. You were led in your trespasses and sins in what you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. We're not talking about believers here. We're not talking about Christians here. We're talking about before Christ, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Those doing such things are sons of disobedience. Let me me, me just pause and offer a little more clarification here. I do not believe, biblically, we are this if we're still repenting, if we're still fighting. Maybe growing weak, maybe weak, but but Christians try to obey their Lord. I, I think we're describing people here who this is their God, this is their Lord. They've made peace. If you've made peace with your sin, your covetousness, your impurity, your morality, I only look at stuff once a week. I made this compromise. I've got a negotiated no-fire zone. Then be, beware. 
beware. And, and really, do you want to ask, okay, how much immorality can I commit before I become an immoral person? Do you really want to know how close you can get to that edge? Really? Let it not even be named among us. I'm sure we'll talk about this in the ABF time, but your last blank here. God's wrath and not his kingdom comes for such people. Comes for such people. Now let me try to give you some closing application before we sing our final song. This is hard. And you hear this and you think, that sounds unloving. That sounds unkind. That sounds legalistic. Search the text, see if it's so. You think I've mishandled it? I would thank you for the correction. Again, it's not just one passage, it's many. But if this is true, and I believe it is, then the most loving thing we can do is to apply it to ourselves and to warn our friends and neighbors, to warn those lukewarm, to warn those dull and asleep professing believers who are walking in darkness and not pretend that everything's fine, but to treat them the way you would treat... Imagine the zeal. Imagine the urgency you would treat a loved one if they were showing four or five symptoms of a deadly cancer. Imagine the urgency. You would not tell yourselves the lies we tell ourselves. We don't want to be rude. Don't want to upset them. Well, maybe they're not sick, and I don't want someone who's well to wonder whether they're sick or not. No. You would say, hey, we got to talk. Especially if it was treatable in the early stages. Especially if it were something that could be cured. You wouldn't worry about any of that nonsense. You'd say, I'm I'm deeply concerned that you may have a deadly disease. You think you're well. You think you're healthy. There is a cure. Because the good news this morning is even if you showed up here today, and this defines you, you can turn to Christ in repentance and faith. You can cast this off. You can be cleansed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, I'll close with this again, the great hope that you're a confession away from being clean. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Paul regularly anticipates the local church will be deceived on precisely this point. That they'll come up with some plausible words to say, no, it's not really that big of a deal. No one's going to go to hell over this. We don't want to be legalists. Whatever. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And there's such grace and hope here. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That same offer of forgiveness and cleansing is here for you today. And if you struggle with these sins, I just encourage you, make war. Fight harder. But be encouraged that in the fight is the evidence of the Spirit of God at work in you. Get help. Fight aggressively. Because this is a war God intends us to win. I'm going to call the rest of the worship team up. We're going to close with our closing song.